0: Hi, everybody. You do not want to miss today's episode. We talk all about feet with my special guest, Dr. Chris Segler, so keep it here. Welcome to Martha Runs the World, a podcast with a new take on running, fitness, and all things health-oriented. I'm Martha Hughes, your host, and each week I present a new topic that is of interest to all runners. Welcome to 38 of Martha Runs the World. I'm so excited and happy to bring this particular episode to you. Well, I'm always happy to bring every episode to you, but this one in particular is a really special one because my special guest, Dr. Christopher Segler, is amazing. He has his own show, his own podcast called Doc on the Run, and you really need to listen to it. He's a podiatrist. He's an expert on feet. All things feet are his specialty. And he's also a runner. He loves to run. So he knows everything about running and feet. So he's perfect for the show. You will learn a lot from him here and you'll learn a lot from his show. And what's great about his show is that he just gives it to you in small little doses, 10, 15 segments. So you can listen to it real quick, get on with your day, and then the next day you can listen to another one. It's really fantastic, and he's been doing it a long time. So I don't want to to take too much time, so I'll give the disclaimer first. You are listening to a running and fitness podcast. I'm a certified personal trainer and lifelong back-of-the-pack runner. All opinions expressed are just that, opinions. Feel free to disagree. And now I won't take up Any more time, I want you to hear exactly what the good doctor has to say. So here it is. And let's welcome to the show Dr. Christopher Sagler, who's a podiatrist, a runner, and he has his own show, Doc on the Run. So welcome to the show, Dr. Chris.
1: Yeah, Marcia, thanks for having me here.
0: Great, great. So um, I love your show, and I wanted to ask you, what is the number one injury that you see the most at your practice? Well, since I see
1: runners and triathletes exclusively, really the, uh, the most common thing I see has to be stress fractures. And I don't know that's necessarily because, um, you know, I have some unique thing with stress fractures necessarily. It's just that obviously that's an extremely common injury among runners. And that really has to be the most common thing I see. Uh, in fact, just this Last weekend, last end of last week, I was lecturing on stress fractures at the International Foot and Ankle Foundation meeting. Specific, you know, treat sort of talking to doctors, foot and ankle surgeons, sports medicine podiatrists, et cetera, about how to treat stress fractures in runners because it really is one of the most common things that happens in to runners when they're training for an event.
0: What are some ways that runners can avoid getting a simple stress fracture when they start out? That's
1: a good question. So, you know, one of the things is, is that um, if you if you just look up what causes a stress fracture, um, one of the things that you'll see more often than not is that this thing called the terrible twos, where we say, you know, stress fractures are caused by uh, running too much, running too often, too many miles, too much increase in your uh, training volume. And it's so that's referred to often as the too many twos. And what doctors do overwhelmingly when they see runners with stress fractures is they tell them to stop running they'll say that you know it's caused by running well you have to remember it is actually called a stress fracture not a run too much fracture it's a a problem that you get because you apply too much stress to one specific bone for one reason or another and then you don't let it fully recover and fully heal before before your next workout and there's a consequence of that you basically have this sub-maximal loading, you know, it's not trauma, you just kind of irritated it over and over and over and over. And then it doesn't heal completely and eventually develops a crack in the bone. But so you have to keep that in mind first is it's not caused by running, it's caused by too much stress. So most of the time when I see runners, there really are simple things that are causing that injury and that very small adjustments could have prevented that injury entirely. For example, if one of the things that i see is that you know runners will run the same route like i tend to do the same thing Um, i like to run the same direction on the same course uh, primarily because it's something where i can sort of test myself over and over i used to do every friday i would start at the near the zoo in san francisco run um basically a, a half marathon up along the beach through golden gate park to the end of the panhandle turn around and come back i would do that every friday and what that would allow me to do is throughout the season i could sort of test my pace on that route and i know it's the same route so nothing has changed you know the hills are in the same place the flats are in the same place and it gives you a way to really assess your progress and so i understand why that's appealing the problem is that many people will you know head out the door take off down the street and if they're running in the street then they have to deal with the slope of the road Uh, Because the road slopes from the line in the center of the road down toward the gutters of the rain runoff. And if you're running, you know, with facing traffic all the time, that causes a problem because the slope of the road applies different stresses to the right foot and left foot. If you're facing traffic and running in the road, your left foot is downhill from your right foot. Your right heel is obviously uphill from your left foot. That pronates the left foot. And it supinates, I'm sorry, it supinates the left foot and it pronates the right foot because of that slope of the road underneath you. And so when you're running on that slope effectively day after day, because that's where you happen to run most of the time, it can really apply abnormal forces. And so in that respect, if you had just been running uh, alternating sides of the street or running some on the sidewalk and some in the street and really varying the actual slope of the road underneath you more consistently, you wouldn't have gotten a stress fracture and the mileage has nothing to do with it it has to do with the cumulative force and so that's the first thing and, and another one of the things i was speaking about at the conference was that this idea of stress and i have several slides in the talk that sort of discuss you know that biomechanical stress the stress of running and landing on the foot and causing an injury to the bone itself well that's only one of the forms of stress so you have Um, biomechanical stressors, hormonal stressors, environmental stressors, psychological stressors, uh, all different forms of stress that can contribute to stress fractures and you can only take so much stress before something breaks. And so it's not just the force of running or the force of um, you know physics effectively applied to the bone, it's all these other things. So that's the first thing is to you know really kind of think about it in those terms and reframe that idea because m- most runners don't need to stop running when they get a stress fracture. They certainly don't have to you know take up a different sport. It's just you have to assess what you're doing within that activity to really reduce the stress enough that it can fully recover before your next workout so that you don't wind up with a problem.
0: Right. Well, maybe maybe the first thing is that not to run the same route every time to vary the route and make sure that the uh, surface is different every time that they go out. Right.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. So you really need to switch up the surface and you need to be really aware of that. Like when I do um, marathons, when I run during the race, I generally, I literally run in the middle of the road on either side of the line. You don't want to land on the line because the air does not dissipate underneath you as much as when you just land on asphalt or concrete. And so I literally run one mile on the left side of the line and then the next mile I run on the right side of the line. So I literally switch sides of the line every single mile throughout a marathon. And if you have a route where you like to run in the street, you have to figure out a way to vary that. You know, when I would do the route, the half marathon thing, what's good about that is that, you know, I have lots of choices. And so I would, you know, run on the, the um, jogging path along Ocean Beach, which goes for a couple of miles before you turn into Golden Gate Park. And then I would run on the right side of the street with my back to traffic near the windmills and up near the the bison enclosure, because there's a lot of room there there's a, a very wide shoulder there's lots of space for cars and frankly there are just not that many areas where tourists are looking for parking of course when i get near the um, the conservatory of flowers in that area where it becomes more congested and uh, tourists are looking for parking and they're trying to you know figure out this weird thing that happens up there where people basically park in the middle of the street because that's where they put the lines and then you have you know bicyclists but between those cars and the curb and all this stuff, it gets very confusing for people. I always face traffic because I don't wanna get hit by a car. So when I turn around and come back though, I try to run the exact same path. So if I'm on the same side of the street I was when I ran out and I run back, then it's effectively reversing those directions. Um, And I think that's a really simple thing to do. Even when I do mile repeats on a track, I run half of the laps in one direction and then I run half in the opposite direction. So even on a track, I alter the direction uh, in order to spread out the the risk, basically.
0: Interesting, interesting that that almost goes against what they tell us to do, right?
1: <laughs> well, it does. I mean, you know, but obviously, it's not good if you get hit by a car. That's riskier than getting a stress fracture because you, you know, ran with your, um, you know, on the right side or left side of the street. Uh, no question. I mean, nobody wants to get hit by a car. That's definitely going to take you out of running for a while if that <laughs> happens. So, um, but it, it does go against what we. Are taught, and I speak to runners all the time. I do lots of uh, consultations on the phone and on on Skype or over webcam, and I will often talk to runners from you know other areas of the country who will call me and they'll say, "Well, you know, I got a I was diagnosed with a tibial stress fracture. This is what I was doing," and I'll listen to their story and I'll just know almost instinctively, like, "Well, let me guess, you run in the street facing traffic all the time?" Based on which foot it is, I can usually tell where they run, and. Uh, so it doesn't mean I'm some kind of genius. It just means we all have very ingrained patterns of how we're supposed to run, how we're supposed to train, how we do our workouts. And, um, and they lend themselves to particular types of injuries.
0: Mm. And that that makes a lot of sense actually it's just kind of strange how we're taught to do a certain way but that may lead to injuries if we don't switch it up but if we do switch it up and maybe run on the street or run in the road one day run the trail the next day run here the next day then it might not be so bad plantar fasciitis that seems to be another common injury how can runners avoid getting that in the first place
1: Uh, The simplest way to avoid getting plantar fasciitis is really simple. Stretch your Achilles tendon. My guess is that most of your listeners don't stretch um, very consistently. And I don't think that has anything to do with your audience in particular. It's just that I have, um, I mean, I've been running a very long time. I know lots of runners and very few runners stretch consistently. And virtually everyone who gets plantar fasciitis has a tight Achilles tendon. So, the root cause of plantar fasciitis is really a tight Achilles tendon and if you um, do a, a simple stretch you know called a static gastroc stretch which I can um, I think I can send you a video to embed uh, on your website or put a link or something there where you can take people to or they can see the video or I made a demonstration video that shows you exactly how to do it uh, and if you do that video routine you will not get plantar fasciitis but Almost all runners I see have tight Achilles tendons. So I've been seeing runners for many years, and I you know, watch them walk, I look at them, I see how much motion they have at the ankle in relation to the Achilles tendon, and I think I have seen a total of three people who are runners who have a normal range of motion of what we're taught in medical school as being normal related to how tight the Achilles tendon is. Now, that does not mean that everyone except those three is somehow diseased or damaged or whatever. It's just that if you run a lot and you develop strength in the gastrosoleo complex that we think of as the calf muscle, well, it's going to be tight, right? Because it's strong. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, the way to think about it is that when we're taught in school that you need 10 degrees of motion and I would say that the most frequent thing I see is people have somewhere around five degrees of motion. You don't have to get to 10, but if you're, if you've been running relatively successfully for years and you have five degrees of motion and you do that stretch periodically and you get literally one degree of extra motion, you just got a 20% increase in motion. So it's a huge reduction in your risk if you can just stretch a little bit, but you know people who get uh, plantar fasciitis always have tight Achilles tendons and you know it's just irritation of a ligament on the bottom of your foot it happens to be the biggest ligament in your foot but it is just a, a ligament but it's it it becomes irritated and stretched and stressed because the Achilles tendon is so tight it causes you to forcibly pronate a bit harder than you would normally and if you can loosen up the Achilles tendon just a tiny bit keep it supple that will prevent plantar fasciitis but it's a it's a very simple thing to prevent and treat
0: that's really great advice thank you so much and i'd love to put that link up to the video on the website cool thank you i've heard a lot of hype about minimalist shoes are they really for everyone like me i have really high arches so when i wear like flat shoes without any kind of support it really hurts so would they be right for everyone like myself
1: well, nothing's right for everyone or we would all do it, right? I mean, right, if, if right. Every, sure. so if you go to a running shoe store, how many versions do they have? Um, and, you know, I've done over the years, I've done lots of lectures at medical conferences on minimalist versus maximalist running shoes, trying to teach physicians about the difference between those. And every time I give that talk at a medical conference, there's a, an opening slide, which, you know, has um, – a title of minimalist versus maximalist running shoes and every conference I've ever done that, I will say to the audience who again is all physicians, you know, what is, what is the opposite of a minimalist running shoe? And of course, every, some doctor always raises their hand and says maximalist running shoes. And I say, no, absolutely not. Um, the opposite of a minimalist running shoe is a shoe like the Brooks beast, which is a motion control, conventional running shoe with a 12 millimeter drop from the heel to toe which has lots of medial posting and material in the arch to impart stability and a stable platform under the the person wearing it that's the difference maximalist running shoes are more similar to minimalist running shoes than they are to conventional running shoes and so the point of that is that there's a lot of confusion about minimalist running shoes conventional running shoes maximalist running shoes and what they mean um, in general and you know, and so there's so many different types of shoes and so many varieties. And they even, you know, something like the A6 gel Keanu, which is one of the most popular running shoes on the market, it changes every year, right? You know, a few times a year when they come out with the new model, it changes, little bitty changes all the time. And again, if there was one thing that worked for everyone, they would never change them. They would just stay the same and they just change the color. And but that's not what they do. They change the uppers, they change the the material on the side of the heel, the pattern which changes the amount of force that goes through the shoe. All that stuff is always changing. And so, you know, some people I think are built for minimalist running or sort of naturally run in a way that lends itself to that form. But in 2009, the American Podiatric Medical Association came out with a position statement that said, you know, barefoot running was not a good idea. In fact, they had a whole um, position statement against barefoot running and minimalist running in general. and. Uh, and basically it says that, you know, you're going to get injured and that since there's no research to show that barefoot running or minimalist running was safe, that as a group, the American Podiatric Medical Association did not recommend it and instead recommended that people wear conventional running shoes. Now, when that came out, uh, I was, uh, I had lectured on minimalist running and, uh, I do think that it can be helpful for many people sometimes. And I was approached by someone who on the top at the time was actually on the board of the american podiatric medical association and i was at a medical conference and he came up to me and he said you know chris you can't tell people that this minimalist running thing makes any sense and you can't recommend it to people it's irresponsible and i just said you know you don't know what you're talking about i said no offense but you don't know anything about running, and and I and I know the people on the board, and I don't believe that the majority of them know anything about running either. And I said, look, the deal is here's here's my basic premise. So if we take that aside, my sort of personal belief that you actually don't know what you're talking about when it comes to running injuries, um, and we look at the basic premise of your idea, you're, the argument in the position statement is that um, there is no research to support the idea that you can run in minimalist shoes or run barefoot without a risk of injury and so instead you recommend people wear normal conventional running shoes. Well there is no research no proof in the medical literature anywhere in the history of medicine that proves that wearing a conventional running shoe with a 12 millimeter heel to toe drop and EVA cushioning and medial posting will protect a runner from injury. In fact, some studies and reports say that 85% of runners get injured every year and most of them are wearing normal conventional running shoes. So you cannot say we don't recommend this because there's no research. So instead we're gonna recommend this other thing when there is no research. And that is really my um, objection to the position statement that came out and, uh, and I think that it's important for runners to recognize that. You know, we think that these governing bodies, somebody like the American Podiatric Medical Association or the FDA or somebody else, that they're always protecting us. But let's face it, big agencies do all things all the time that don't make any sense. And to me, it makes no sense at all. So there are some people who can benefit from minimalist running. And there's some people who I think that as a rule should not run um, in minimalist running shoes or run barefoot particularly associated with certain foot types or certain types of injuries. But one of the things that you mentioned a minute ago is sort of like a simple tip, right, of how to prevent injuries and running on the right side of the street, alternating to the left side of the street, changing your um, routine can certainly help. And at the same time, changing your footwear can certainly help too. So uh, I run in four different types of shoes. If I do uh, speed work on the track, I run in Newtons, which basically force you to run essentially with minimalist running form Um, when I do really short, fast tempo runs or I do races, I wear can which are a type of uh, minimalist running shoe. When I run, uh, any run more, more than about, I don't know, 15 or 18 miles. uh, I use um, a normal conventional cushioning neutral running shoe. And, and then I use hokas for some other runs. So I run in four different kinds of shoes. The reason for that is not that I think one is necessarily particularly suited to a type of workout, but I know for sure that, you know, if you're to go, let's say you pick a six mile run that you're comfortable with, that, you know, at a certain pace, that's a relatively fast pace for you. If you go do that run in your normal running shoes, and then the next week on the same day with the same amount of recovery between your other workouts, you put on minimalist running shoes and you go do that exact same workout on that day in the exact same state of recovery that you did the previous week, you will be sore in different places. And what that implies is that running in different types of shoes with different types of running form stresses different structures in different ways that will decrease your risk of injury because all overuse injuries in runners are stress injuries. They are all too much stress applied to one tissue without sufficient recovery. And then you sustain an injury because it didn't fully recover Before you subjected it to more stress, and if you alternate your shoes and you're using different types of shoes, then it makes that um, simple. And the reason I do it for, like, I only use Newtons on the track when I'm doing my mile repeats, is that I don't have to think about it. I don't have to try to calculate how much I ran in the other shoes or whatever. I just I use them for specific workouts just to make it simple for me. And you know that really is one way that you can sort of add in minimalist running or you know, to your routine, I think that can, can benefit you in many ways.
0: That's really interesting. And I like your definition of what minimalist is. Maybe I do use a more minimalist shoe in that I use ultras, which are zero drops. So maybe I'm actually closer to it than I thought.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Ultras are minimalist shoes. And, right. you know, w- one thing that's important to note about minimalist shoes, I think, is that, you know, you have to realize that um, normal people who are, not runners who have taken up running um, in an effort to lose weight, become more fit, anything, um, just as a uh, you know, as a New Year's resolution to start running. They do not go get ultras. They don't get Kenbaras. They don't get um, you know any minimalist shoes at all. They just go to a running shoe store and they pick out shoes that seem to be popular that are recommended to them by the the salesperson at the store. And um, one really important discussion I usually have when I'm lecturing to physicians about this topic is that, you know, there's a there's a guy that goes, you know, caref- uh, ben, uh, barefoot uh, Ken Bob Saxon, right? He wrote a book um, about running barefoot. He's been running barefoot since the 70s, I think. Um, and he's obviously very accomplished as a barefoot runner. And one of the most useful things I've ever heard on this topic, he said that Minimalist shoes are a tool for experienced barefoot runners. They're not a tool for people who want to begin minimalist running. And the problem is is that we as runners, you know, we are we've been running for a long time, we always want to get faster, we want to become more efficient, we want our form to be better. We think about that kind of stuff all the time. And then, you know, we read a book like Born to Run and there's this very strong argument that if you run as a minimalist runner, your form will be Uh, in some way more efficient which of course efficiency and distance running is the key to success speed longevity everything and so it implies that if you just start running in minimalist shoes then you'll somehow wind up running like a you know one of these really accomplished minimalist runners and this is a problem because if you If you switch your form significantly, just as I discussed, you know, about how if you run in minimalist shoes on the same workout, you'll be sore in different areas. Well, that means you're stressing different tissues differently. And, you know, if you start out running and you're not a runner, you're not going to run far enough to get a musculoskeletal injury initially. You have to build up some strength. And your aerobic fitness and the muscular strength builds up fairly quickly. The strength in the tendons, bones, and ligaments, the supporting structures develops much more slowly because the blood supply is not as good to those structures. So if you go and decide to start running it with, you know, barefoot running form, minimalist running, whatever you want to call it and you run barefoot, you're not going to be able to run that far. I mean, I can, you know, quite literally on any day I could put on my running shoes and head out the door and run 20 miles. It might be ugly if I did that when I wasn't feeling good, but I could do it. So I can always run. But if I, you know, head out the door barefoot, I'm not going to run 20 miles. You know, you can go maybe a mile or two before you start getting skin abrasions and that sort of stuff. And it takes a long time to actually strengthen up the skin on the bottom of your foot enough to actually really run truly barefoot. And because of that, you know, his argument is that you cannot develop a musculoskeletal injury if you're running purely barefoot, because it takes so long to build up the endurance in terms of the, the condition of the skin that you're not gonna get a stress fracture. But what around, you know, it's not as bad now, but around 2010, 2011, you know, a year or two after Born to Run came out, I saw runners really, really, really frequently. And they and most of the time what I would hear is they would say, well, you know, I got these minimalist running shoes and I just started running in them and I got a stress fracture or I got perineal tendonitis or I got some other injury. And they, they don't really, do what is recommended and with newtons when i started using those i was asked to do a review of those i think around that same time around 2009 or something and basically the recommendations from newtons was put the shoes on and go run one mile and i actually remember like putting on my heart rate monitor and my hat and my sunglasses and stuff and i was thinking it's taking me longer to get dressed than it's going to take to do a mile you know and it seemed like a silly sort of exercise because it didn't seem like a workout to me to run one mile but if you're running with a completely different form, with a completely different striking pattern, then the st- stresses are completely different and you're not used to them and you're not actually strong enough for them. So I see these runners all the time who would say, Well, you know, I've been running marathons, I've been training, but I read this book and I wanted to try it out. So I basically just got some minimalist shoes and ran, ran like 10 miles the first time. And that's too far. You can get injured that way. And I had a, an Ironman champion from Germany. Send me an email and he said, well, I did this and I got really, really bad perineal tendonitis the very first run. And I said, well, how long was your run? He said 16 miles. And, you know, to him as a, as a world-class athlete, 16 miles is not a long way, but if you're not used to that workout, that is way too much. And so our perspective as runners on what is normal, what fits for our workouts, what is really appropriate is way off sometimes when it comes to these new workouts. But again, you know, a mile does not seem like a workout. And so we have to restrain ourselves in a certain way. And And it's very difficult to restrain yourself because you can put on minimalist shoes and you can go run your same uh, workout. Any of them, you could do your long run in minimalist shoes and you wouldn't know it until afterward how much damage you actually did.
0: Well, sure. And I, I remember the first pair of Newtons I got, I got them when they were really popular mm-hmm. and they actually really helped me. Fix my form because I used to be a heel striker, and they helped me fix my form into a mid-foot striker, which I am today. And I, I loved my Newtons. They, they were that's back when I was fast. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean I, they they'll do that. I mean I'm a that, fan of Newtons. I still yep. use them for uh, work on the track, and and they did the same thing for me. I was a chronic heel striker, and um, I used the Newtons. And a couple of things are interesting about that is I literally just used them initially on the track. And, and then I'll do a couple of other small workouts with them, but, uh, it really did force me to make that change and really pay attention to my form because you do have to pay attention to your form when you're running in Newtons. And, uh, after doing that for a period of time, um, the next marathon I did was 20 minutes faster and wow. 20 minutes is a lot faster. And so, you know, even if you're slow, that's a lot of time. And, yeah. um, and, interestingly, since I did that, since I actually, you know, more than 10 years ago, um, I've never had shin splints again. I used to get shin splints all the time. Anytime I would do hill work or um, if I'd run on lots of hilly courses, I would get shin splints. haven't had them since. And, you know, that that really is, um, I think, attributable to the change in form that I had, not necessarily just the shoes. I just think the Newtons are really an effective tool to get you to Uh, make that transition because it really does provide you such valuable feedback when you're running.
0: That's terrific. You've been doing your podcast for a while now. It's what, three, four years now.
1: Yes. I I don't remember when I exactly started, but I think we have, I don't know, what's over 200 episodes. I know that.
0: Yeah. It's been a while. What made you start your podcast?
1: Uh, Believe it or not. Well, it's interesting you say that because I actually saw a woman yesterday um, and I think that she was – a large part of the reason uh, I started the podcast. And and if I remember right, I'd seen her for an injury and, uh, and she, w- she basically had said, you should, you know, I, I went and saw her and she had an injury. It was a fairly common injury. Um, but when I was explaining it to her, cause she was really upset at the time because she had been told by a physical therapist that her x-ray looked terrible and that she had a problem. And, um, and she was really concerned because, you know, she was, she, I think she was overly worried because she was given some misinformation. And basically, I just sat with her and, and I explained the injury and all the normal stuff about what to do for, you know, diagnosis and treatment and the usual things that we do as a physician. But I also just said, look, this is why your therapist thought that. Like, this is what they saw and this is what the conclusion they made and this is why they think that. This is why I think something differently. And then I also explained like to her specifically why it's sometimes a bad idea to get an x-ray or an MRI or CT scan or whatever. So we always want information, but we always think of these uh, tests as some sort of photographic proof of what happened. And sometimes the information we get is erroneous and and it's not helpful because we're being misled basically by the, the information. In fact, that was a large portion of the talk that I just gave at this medical conference when I was talking about stress response, stress fracture, and. Um, stress-related injuries in athletes is that, you know, we always, athletes in particular would like to get an MRI to find out for sure, but the information does not really help us. And so I went through that talk and was explaining, you know, like if you can look at the classification schemes, this does not provide useful information given these scenarios with different types of stress fractures. And and this this is exactly what had happened to her. So she was overly concerned, very upset, and really demoralized by the information she had been given by a medical practitioner who looked at her x-ray and made the wrong conclusion and so and she said you should explain this stuff to runners and that was really how the idea got started and so I started started a podcast after that specifically to try to explain you know these details because they are small details right it's not like Um, I'm, you know, the only person that talks about running injuries, all runners talk about running injuries, because all runners experience them at some point, pretty much. And, um, but I think there's a lot of misinformation. And there's a lot of stuff that we can do that are very, very simple things to help avoid the overwhelming majority of running injuries. And in addition to that, um, I think there's also this really frustrating thing that happens where athletes are told to stop running. And that is also a part of why I do it. Because you know from a personal standpoint, when before I went to medical school, I um I raced motorcycles professionally and I had a bad injury to my knee, uh, and and it was basically dislocating uh, during races when I started the next season. And a guy that had done a previous knee surgery on me when I had torn the meniscus in a crash, uh, You know, he listened to my story and he said, well, you know, let me see if I got this right. Your knee only dislocates when you ride motorcycles. And I said, yes, that's right. But specifically heavily left-handed tracks like Monterey, Mexico, Texas World Speedway and Talladega. And he said, well, you just quit riding motorcycles. And and then I like I waited for him to laugh and he didn't. And I said, well, time out, Dr. Harvey. Remember, um, if if I win the race, I get paid a lot of money. If I finish in 10th, I get a little bit of money. But if I don't get on a motorcycle, I actually get zero money all month. So I'm not sure how not getting on a motorcycle helps me achieve my goals. And so when I started the podcast, it was really with the premise of trying to help runners figure out how to continue to achieve their goals, even if they do get injured or experience an injury along the way, because, you know, no runner ever goes to the doctor because they have something that looks bad on an x-ray and they want that to go away they always go to the doctor because pain, soreness, swelling, concern, worry, whatever, is interfering with their workouts in a way that is going to prevent them from achieving their running goal. And almost every runner I see is signed up for or wants to sign up for some race that is going to happen on a very specific day, and they want to start at a very specific time, and they want to finish in a very specific time. And the pain, the injury, whatever it is, is just interfering with the process of achieving that goal. But we as physicians are trained to not consider that stuff at all, but to only consider the injury as an isolated thing that we're supposed to make look better on an x-ray to make, you know, not hurt. Even if that is at the um, detriment to the actual goal and it's completely backwards. And so, you know, when I talked to this woman and she, she basically said, you should, you know, figure out some way to do this or do a podcast or something like I think she might have even told me I start should start a podcast but that's where it really came from it was was out of that idea
0: well I think she was right because your podcast is the only one that I know of I mean there are a couple really big running podcasts and they're great podcasts that have doctors on as guests but I but I don't know of any other that has a doctor hosting that talks about uh, injuries from, you know, first person who can give specifics about it from the uh, professional opinion. And I love that about it. And you're a runner, too, which, which makes it really, really worthwhile listening to. I really recommend all my runners listen to your show, Doc on the Run, because it, it's spectacular. What is the most surprising and rewarding part of doing your show?
1: Uh, well, I think the most uh, surprising part is that I do. It's really interesting to me and it is surprising. But uh, I mean, obviously, the whole goal is to provide information to people to help them to get the clarity they need to make the right decisions. Right. I mean, it's not complicated. So uh, running injuries themselves are really not that complicated. But I do get emails frequently. Um, Sometimes I actually get phone calls. I've gotten cards in the mail um, that will say, you know, I had this particular injury. I listened to your podcast. I actually figured out what to do. And I went and ran my race and finished, you know, within my goal time. Well, that obviously is ideal, right? That's what we all want when we go watch some YouTube video or listen to a podcast. And we're trying to get some piece of information and some clarity. And it seems to do that. Just, I do get these, um, you know, feedback from runners uh, all over the world who will literally say that they, this worked. I mean, I got a voicemail one day from a woman in the Philippines and she sprained her ankle on a trail run. She listened to an episode of the podcast and she just called and like left this message said, you know, I just really want to thank you. You And I'm in the Philippines and I have to run and I injured myself and there's basically no medical care here. And I was able to just literally treat it on my own, make my own diagnosis and then get back to running and, you know, and thanks. And so um, that has been a really surprising thing. I mean, I thought it would be useful to help people understand these injuries better but I am a little surprised about how much uh, runners actually can go on, get the information they need. Cause it really is there, you know? Um, and that, that is the goal of course.
0: Right. Well, that's terrific. And yeah, I, I love every, every show is fascinating and you make it short enough that we can get the information we need and it's interesting enough. And then we can kind of, kind of go on with our day. So thank you. Oh, I have one other question to, for you. Um, and I ask this of all my guests. Um, I know you've done a lot of races, but is there one race in the world, regardless of entry of requirements, uh, where in the world, is there one race that you haven't done in the world that you'd like to do? Uh,
1: yes. So, uh, I've done, yeah, I have done lots of races. I've done lots of interesting races. So I'd have to say the only race that, um. That well, I don't know if that's really true. I guess there are two. So, the Boston Marathon, I've never done uh, primarily because I was doing Ironman triathlons for so long. Um, Mark Allen told me that I had to quit really running marathons and training for marathons while I was doing Ironman triathlons. So, at some point, <laughs> I'd like to do the Boston Marathon, but that's not really unique. I think that's on the list of pretty much every runner, everybody who does marathons would like to do Boston someday. So Um, the one that I really think would be interesting and would like to do, but has very high barrier of entry is bad water. So, uh, so I'd really like to do bad water, uh, at some point. Um, the only difficulty in that, the reason it's not really like, you know, on my list is it has a, a very, very high barrier to entry.
0: Yeah, it sure does. Um, and, and it's, it's fascinating, um, yeah, if I was 20 years younger, I'd want to do that. <laughs> but at 60, uh, probably a little too old. But anyway, thank you so much for being on my show. I really appreciate it. I, I could go on all day asking you questions. I swear, you, you are a wealth of information, and I really appreciate it. And I love your show, Doc on the Run, and continue on with your great success. Thank you so much. All right,
1: Martha. Thanks very much for having me on the show.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Chris. That was Dr. Chris Segler. He's remarkable, isn't he? I just love that he came on the show, and I just just oh, I'm overwhelmed, reclamped as they say. So I will have all his contact information. I will have that video on the website and his webs and his website link on my website. So you'll all be able to go there and and check out his all his information and his, and his podcast and all that fun stuff. I also, of course, want to thank Lance for the music for the show, because without his music, it just wouldn't be as good. And, of course, his information will always be on my uh, website as well. So you can check out his music as well. And you can uh, donate to the show through Patreon if you want to. You can just give a a month, if you want, or a little bit more. I'm going to t- start having some episodes, exclusive episodes for Patreon donors. So, if you want to be one of them and listen to some exclusive stuff next month, that starts, you can go ahead and do that through the website. So, and all that stuff is coming up in, in October. And you can check out the website at martharunstheworld.com you can email me with any comments or any ideas for upcoming shows at martharunstheworld at gmail.com and next week we'll have a whole nother fun show so until then let's tie up our shoelaces and go for a run